And they did stand. Um, let's pray for just a second. Bow your heads with me. Lord God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will indeed be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Bit of an introduction. Um, Alex said, you know, you get to see the elders <laughs> put a name to a face and then wish maybe later on you hadn't. But um, one of the things that you may not know about me is that uh, I have always, I've not been a big science fiction person in, in, in the, overall picture, the overall meaning of science fiction, but I was, I've always liked the concepts of time travel. It's always intrigued me. And I got really into Star Trek as a kid. Now I know that some of you guys, you know, Star Trek. But, you know, there have been so many revisions, uh, you know, of Star Trek. I mean, they canceled the thing in 68, and I think there have been like, you know, six movies of it, I think, and uh, who knows how many spinoffs. So I'm sure that somewhere on some uh, channel, you know, you can watch Star Trek. I know you can, because I do. Um, you can watch Star Trek today. But one of the neat things about Star Trek that really intrigued me was when they would somehow or other go back in time. And um, the time travel thing, you know, I can remember of a couple of them when they went back to Earth, in Earth's past. And, of course, there was the challenge because they couldn't interact with any of the people they found there to any extent because if they did anything that would alter Earth's history, you know, who knows what would have happened. And it had to follow the prime directive, you know, not to interfere. And even the Enterprise's engines were warp drive engines. I don't know if you know who that is, but that's a concept. It's actually a real scientific concept that somehow if you could warp time, you could travel through space not having to worry about aging and all that stuff. So the whole idea of time travel has always intrigued me. But I've always considered it to be science fiction, which, of course, not that much science to it and a lot more fiction. But it has always intrigued me. But as, as I was growing in my faith, probably sometime in, in college, and started getting seriously into the Bible, I found that that whole concept of time and being beyond time wasn't as fictional as I thought it was. And one of the amazing things as you get into the Bible and start studying it is that the narrative of the Bible, starting in Genesis, the narrative actually begins. It commences before Earth's history begins. And when you follow it all the way through to Revelation, it concludes after Earth's future has ceased. Think about that one. Bible begins before Earth's history begins, and it concludes after Earth's future has ceased. For somebody who's into time travel, that's a beauty. Really get into that. This morning's scripture verse for the sermon is from uh, John's Revelation, uh, which he received from the Lord. 
And we're looking at uh, chapter 21 of Revelation. Next to the last chapter of Revelation, next to the last chapter in the Bible. I'm going to read the first six verses. Afterwards, I'm going to attempt to do some theological and maybe expositional time travel. Revelation 21, 1 through 6, this is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, we come before you as we look into your word and we ask, Lord, that you will indeed open our hearts, you will open our minds, that we will see and be able to give the glory to you that is due your name for the mighty things you have done and are yet to do. Amen. In verse 6 we read, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. The A and the Z of it. But the A and Z of what? So let's look into why and how Jesus claims to be the Alpha. In probably the most well-known verse written by the Apostle John, coming out of his Gospel, John 1, verses 1 through 3, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, as John references him, was in the beginning with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. In eternity, he existed before history, and he made all things. Indeed, he is the Alpha, Jesus, the Lord of all creation. He is not only present at creation, John tells us he is the Creator. So we see as time begins, I'm not talking about like, you know, synchronize your watches, time beginning, you know, the game is going to start. Not that kind of time begins. As time begins, referring to the institution of time, 
in the pre-existence of time. Time is a concept that is about to be created, as is everything else that is about to exist. And as time begins, we find Jesus is in unity with the Father and the Spirit, who creates out of nothing all that comes to be. Reading Genesis, we, we hear God speaking. And we hear God saying, let there be light. We hear him say, let there be an expanse and let it separate waters from waters. We hear him say, let the earth sprout vegetation. Let there be lights in the expanse to separate the day from the night. Let the waters swarm with living creatures. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. And then we hear him say, let us make man in our own image. Each of these exclamations of our creator results in not just something new, but if we look at the Hebrew text, the word for the verb create is bara, and it denotes something that never existed before, something that's fresh, something that's novel, something that is unique to its author. The Alpha. Our Creator, our Lord Jesus, saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. And shortly after that, I'm going to catch this one. This is good stuff. Shortly after the creation narrative, we get a glimpse of God's heart. His desire for man to be a relational creature. As God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally in relationship with one another, as God establishes marriage and family, Human beings are created to be relational. Human beings are the creatures that are bearing God's own image as spiritual beings. And as we read this, we realize that a relationship exists between God and man, as we see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day to be with Adam and Eve. God's relationship with his creation was one to, he spent time with them. Much as you and I might take a walk together just strolling along, we find that God is walking in the garden. Pretty amazing. God created us. He created humanity to have a relationship with him. We are relational beings. And we know the rest of the story, too. We know of that crafty serpent, Satan, entering into God's perfect creation. And we also know of humanity's willingly being deceived and willingly falling into sin, and what that did to God's creation. Paul wrote to the Romans, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together 
and the pains of childbirth until now. The whole of creation was plunged into an existence of sin, death, mourning, crying, and pain. And that's the world that you and I are in today. In fact, it's the only thing we've ever known. You'll often hear somebody say, well, the world isn't perfect, or a certain situation isn't perfect, which it isn't. But that description really doesn't do justice to the extent of the fall. We are so fallen ourselves. And we know nothing but a fallen world. It's impossible to conceive of the agony felt by Adam and Eve when they went from being in a perfect relational union with God to being thrown from the garden into a world that we see. It's impossible to conceive of life before the fall. But praise the Lord, you don't have to go far in Genesis before we see that God's plan includes the redemption of humanity. He still desires a relationship. And we see that he calls a people unto himself, the Hebrews, the Jews, his chosen people, the people from whom God will ultimately send the Redeemer. And God gives to his people the law to guide their relationships to him and their relationships to one another. And time and again, the prophets of the Old Testament foretell the coming of the Messiah, the, until the incarnate God, until the God-man Jesus, the Christ in Greek, Christos, comes into time and space. God entering into time and space in the village of Bethlehem where he lives 30 years among his fallen creation until he satisfies God's justice and judgment on a cross in Jerusalem. The gospel rightly proclaims that Jesus died, that we might have eternal life, but even more so. As we study God's plan, we realize that Christ came and died that we might have that relationship with God. He came to restore the relationship that was lost, that was shattered at the fall. For we know that for all who call upon the name of Jesus and confess their sins, confess their need for his redeeming work, God's grace is bestowed giving a new life, a life free from the guilt of sin, a life now blessed by a personal relationship with the living God, fostered through the Word of God and the indwelling of the Spirit, 
you don't know that new life today, I call upon you to ask Christ into your heart. If you need to talk to an elder or Alex, we're around. It's so important to renew that relationship through the blood of Jesus. And as we live that life journey back to the image of God, the process of sanctification draws us nearer and nearer to his heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, we read that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So I was talking to the kids, you know, this, we're not talking about God's gorilla glue here. It doesn't say that if anyone is in Christ, he's patched up and put back together again. It says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Physically, the believer usually doesn't appear changed too much. There are some folks that their lives are so changed that you can see it physically. But that isn't necessarily always the case. But spiritually, the believer is a new creation. And the Greek word for new, which is kainos, doesn't really matter, except that the connotation of that newness is the same as we found in the word bara when God created the heavens and the earth. It's that same newness, that same meaning as in fresh start. It's a newness not in time or in age, it's a newness in substance. Spiritually, you are a new person. you got the same look about you, your voice hasn't changed any. You're bald, you're still bald. But God, in God's sight, you are a new creation. You are a creation that is now fit as sanctification takes place for eternity. We have a relationship, a personal relationship with the living Lord. Last week, in Dave Johnson's sermon, he explained that the loving relationship that God has with us is oftentimes beyond anything we can comprehend. That in some of the times of our greatest anguish and our greatest suffering, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is the relationship that God has for His people and has with His people. Interceding when you can't do it yourself. And as we grow in our relationship with God, we're encouraged by Paul's writing in the Philippians, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ. It's a great phrase. 
So we've looked a little bit at Alpha, who, how Jesus is the Alpha. We've talked a bit about God's plan of redemption. The day of Jesus Christ is a nice segue right into the Omega. The Omega. The end. The end of what? According to theologians, in one sense, we are already in the day of Jesus Christ. The plan of redemption has been accomplished in that Jesus has come into time and space and that he bore our sins on Calvary's tree was risen from the dead. Salvation has been secured. And yet, while his work of salvation is complete, we're still waiting for the fulfillment of time. The day of Jesus Christ seems to be one of those two-part things. The completion of God's plan of redemption we find in Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in verse 5 we read, Behold, I am making all things new. And as we dig into these verses, we find that English word new all over the place. In Espanol, la palabra nuevo. I checked with Alex, my go-to guy. And the English word new has exactly the same meaning as the Spanish word nuevo in this instance. Sometimes, for those of us Anglo-types, you know, we say one word and sometimes it takes three or four in Spanish, as it does also in the Hebrew and the Greek. Sometimes one language will be more specific about a word than another language will. But in this one, I did check with Alex, and your Spanish Bible that says nuevo has exactly the same meaning as the English Bible that says new, so I was okay to go with this statement. Sure, shoot, I will stick my foot in my mouth somewhere along the way. I just didn't want this one to be it. That word new, whether it's nuevo or English, comes from the Greek word kainos, just as we saw before. That new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, something that's brand new, fresh, novel, unique to its author. And if we look at a parallel verse in the Old Testament from Isaiah 65, seven or eight hundred years beforehand, Isaiah wrote, For I behold a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Sounds pretty much the same. Double-check the word new. Comes from a Hebrew word, hadas, and again, that same connotation something that didn't exist before, unique and novel. 
Anything made by God, as I said with the kids, is new. Now, a bit of an aside, just as a way of an example. There's quite a popularity in, in refurbishing things these days. The, the DIY network, hands, yeah, I knew you would, Barbara. I've got a redhead in the back. It's fake red, but nonetheless, you know, DIY, barn wood builders, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's pretty popular. Restoring old buildings, flipping houses. That's good stuff. But it's, you know, like, truthfully, they get really expensive and they're beautiful and it's a great show. But it's Gorilla Glue. See, God's building new. He's not patching things up. Whether it's the Hebrew verb bara for creation, for to create, or whether it's the adjectives in Greek and Hebrew, kenos and hadas, doesn't make any difference. Every time we see God's hand making something, every time we see his voice speaking something into existence, it's brand new. Nothing like it has existed before. So what's the point of this? Well, I think so often as Christians, when we look at God's plan of redemption, we get things a little short-circuited. Because, you know, the, the, the favorite old hymn, When We All Get to Heaven, which is okay. I always like that. I don't want to downplay it, but the reality of it is, the Bible is very clear that while we want to go to heaven, and while to be in God's presence and in the presence of his glory there is going to be fabulous, that's not the ultimate destiny for believers in Christ. His plan for his people concludes in a new creation, a new earth, where the relationship with God and his people will be as the bridegroom with his bride, can't think of much that would be closer, more intimate, more caring. For eternity, God will dwell in the earth with those saved through the blood of Jesus. Where death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things will have passed away. All who name the name of Jesus, and confess him as their Lord and Savior, are spiritually in his presence right now and awaiting that day. The Alpha and the Omega. Behold, I am making all things new. When I taught, I would often get all excited about something, and I'd, I'd, you know, usually it was something with history, and I'd be off you know, a day or two on a tangent. And, you know, I'd be all fired up, and you'd have three or four whose eyes were like this all the time. You'd have three or four whose eyes were like this all the time, and then there was most of them in the middle. 
And um, Jenny's giggling. She knows. And you'd get, I'd get through this whole big spiel, all excited about it. And those of you who teach, you know, graduate level, you get the same thing going here. Because you know there's going to be somebody who's going to, after the lecture or after the class, is going to come up to you and say, do I have to know this for the test? Only if you want to be a pharmacist someday. Uh, right, Dave? The question is always, what's the takeaway? What do I need to know? Here's the takeaway. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from all eternity is a relational God. And from the beginning, desires a relationship with those creatures that are created in his image. His desire is so great that Christ left the glory of the Father and the Spirit to be incarnate with us. To live a perfect life solely so he could die on Calvary and fulfill the justice, paying the judgment that we deserve. We are in God's image relational creatures. And as new creations in Christ, we have a relationship with him, not just in the future, but at this very moment. And that relationship is likewise with all of our sisters and brothers in Christ. A while back, Walt Coppersmith was preaching here. And he made, this is not going to be an exact quote, but it's close. He said, we're all family. We're blood relatives. We share the same blood. It's the blood of Jesus. Love that quote. We share the same blood. It's the blood of Jesus. We must live as followers of Jesus in word and indeed, Paul admonishes us to work out our salvation. And we know that as new creations in Christ, our inner self is renewed day by day. That relationship, there is an, an expectation on God's part. That our relationship with him is going to grow as we're sanctified and our relationship with one another, the Church of Jesus Christ. As such, we can be prepared to live our lives in this still very fallen world and to give reason for the hope that is within us. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you. We praise you as creator. We praise you as redeemer. We praise you, Lord God, as the alpha and the omega. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to live in this day of Jesus Christ. Live as followers 
and believers. In Christ's name, amen.